0: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Alison Bechdel about how identifying herself as a lesbian when she was young led her into a career as a cartoonist.
2: I became an outlaw at a young age and was very freed up to do whatever I wanted. And I was not doing—I was writing this crazy marginal comic strip for free. It was not a great career path, and bizarrely, it has worked
1: out. Here's Debbie Millman. For some artists, their work and their lives are so intertwined it's impossible to tease them apart. Alison Bechdel is one such artist. To talk about her work is to talk about her. Her cartoons and graphic novels lay out the intimate intricacies of her life in all their heartbreaking splendor. Her long running comic strip Dykes to Watch Out for is one of the major achievements in the comics genre. Her graphic memoirs, Fun Home and Are You My Mother, brought her work to a mainstream audience. In 2015, Fun Home was adapted as a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical, and it's still going strong. She joins me to talk about her work, which is to say, her life. Alison Bechdel, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you, Debbie. I'm very happy to be here.
1: I understand that one of your all-time favorite Mad Magazine cartoons began with a first-grader's What I Did Last Summer (laughs) report about visiting a farm and seeing pigs. Why is this your favorite? That's such a perfect first question
2: because it ties in with the work and life being the same thing. So this little boy writes his What I Did This Summer report about going to a farm and seeing pigs. And it evolves over the years. For every school paper, he rewrites a version of this until he's an animal husbandry student and he's writing scientific papers about pigs. And there's these same little through lines keep showing up. What excited me about it was this idea that there's just one thing that you're passionate about, and you can just keep doing it for the rest of your life.
1: Over and over.
2: Over and over, on a slightly higher level each time, hopefully.
1: Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) You were born in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Your father was a high school English teacher and also operated a funeral home. Your mother was an actress and also a teacher. I believe you were about four years old when you saw your first butch lesbian. (laughs) What happened? I was out with my dad on some funeral
2: home-related errand uh, in a larger city. We grew up in a very small town, so I think we might have been in Philadelphia. And he took me to lunch and a little luncheonette, and a woman came into the place who just blew the top of my head off, this big woman wearing men's clothes. But I just remember seeing this person who I recognized you know, as a version of myself. And my father recognized her too. He he turned and saw her and he said to me,
1: is that what you want to look like? <laughs> well, he was so adamant about you wearing barrettes in your hair and dresses at that time. Yeah.
2: And of course, that was exactly what I wanted to look like. And I didn't know it was possible or that anyone else did it. But, it, you know, simultaneously, I was getting the message that that was not not okay.
1: In your intro to The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For, which is a compilation of all of the comics over the 25 years of writing and drawing this amazing universe, um, you write about finding and reading your kindergarten report card. And this is what your teacher wrote about you. Speaks hesitantly and seldom uses good grammar, but seems to prefer silence most of the time quiet, restrained, introversion, obsession with detail, contempt for leadership, inability to handle criticism, bad judgment, performs well where speaking is unnecessary, draws detail in realistic way. How much of this is still accurate? Pretty much everything. (laughs) Spot on. We are who we are, right? We become who we become. I learned that in reading (laughs) Are You My Mother, which also blew my mind. Were you a bad student? No,
2: no. In kindergarten, I was still trying to get used to the drill, but I figured it out pretty quickly, and I was a very good student.
1: When you were 10 years old, you experienced an episode of obsessive-compulsive disorder. It would take you apparently all night to write a simple diary entry. Your mother got involved and had you dictate your entries that she would input into your diary, and you've written how you feel that this activity sealed something into you that's been a kind of template for what you've done with the rest of your life. Can you talk about what you mean by that? What kind of template for the rest of your life?
2: Well, I feel like that was the moment, that period of time when my mother took dictation from me for my diary, that I became a memoirist. Oh. That the thing I was most passionate about was the act of writing down the material of my life. Like that, that, was, that had become my subject in that moment. And I think what was happening was the stuff that in a more normal, more relaxed family would have been transmitted through affectionate language or touch, we didn't have that. So it, it was all getting funneled into this act of my mom writing down. The stuff I told her I did.
1: I was talking to my therapist about what causes obsessive-compulsive disorder. I had a slight brush with OCD behavior when I was about 10, and I I had this, I guess, existential um, feeling about what was true and what wasn't true and had a really hard time articulating what I felt because I didn't know if— I was being truthful if that feeling was going to change. So when somebody would say, how are you, you know, which is like the normal question you ask people, I would say, well, maybe I'm okay, but maybe I'm not.
2: Wow. that's <laughs> No, that's very akin to my disorder because it, it all stemmed out of being afraid I was lying. I was
1: afraid I was lying. And it stopped actually when I got in trouble for... Doing something that I didn't do, and that I knew was the truth, and then somehow it went away. Wow. But so it brought up sort of all these memories of my doing that, and I asked my therapist, "Well, why do people have these these disorders?" And she said, "It's an attempt to control the world. If you feel like the world outside view is out of control, yeah. you can control these behaviors, and it gives you this sense of being in control." And so I think I was out of – I felt somewhat out of control about what the truth was of my life at that time, which was absolutely accurate. But, it you know, it took, you know, 45 years later to figure it out. Uh-huh. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, While working on your book, Essential Dykes to Watch Out For, you ran across a cardboard-bound compilation you made of your best stories and drawings when you were 12, and you titled it An Odd, Strange, and Curious Collection of Alison Bechtel's Works. You felt that the parallels were alarming, from the background details in the drawings to the use of marginal comments on the selected pieces. Were they really that similar, or was it just this sort of startled realization that you'd had this desire to, to draw and and communicate in this way since you were really little, like from the time you were three.
2: What was interesting to me about seeing that childhood compilation was not so much the drawings themselves as the act of compiling, as the act of self-archiving, you know, culling my stuff into a some kind of structure that made sense to me and, you know, prizing it, investing it with meaning for my own purposes, which I continue to do. It's like an active memoir, you know, just making sure my stuff is presented in a way that makes sense to me.
1: Going back for a moment to the OCD episode, what ultimately gave you the sense that you didn't need to do that kind of behavior anymore? Did your mother's dictation really stop it? You
2: know, honestly, I haven't stopped it. I still do it. I still am (laughs) riddled with it. I just have learned to disguise it. In what way? Like something productive? Well, in some ways, I would say that becoming a cartoonist was a productive way of harnessing it. But no, I make little ticks and gestures all the time that I hope other people can't see. Like what? Oh, God. But um, now you're
1: telling me that I'll be noticing them, but I, I promise I will Like won't.
2: right now, I'm sort of breathing out of this side of my mouth instead of naturally.
1: Is it because you're uncomfortable?
2: I do it all the time, but I guess maybe I'm always uncomfortable a little bit. Why? I don't know. Uh, I wish I could get rid of it. I wish I could get this whole feeling, like, needed out of my body. But then I don't know if I would still be myself. I would be someone else.
1: I know you don't like the question, when did you decide you wanted to be a cartoonist? But I I couldn't help but... (laughs) wonder how on earth your guidance counselor in high school could recommend that you become a dentist. <laughs> how on earth? <laughs> I, Did think she it was think? This,
2: I think it was the result of some achievement test. There are these like vocational sorting tests that they give you. I don't know. I guess I scored high for dentist.
1: You've stated that drawing people has always been your passion. And as a child, you rarely bothered creating backgrounds for your figures, because you were too eager to move on to your next subject. And you drew hundreds of soldiers and cowboys and Indians and baseball players and executioners and boxers. This is your list. Chefs, explorers, policemen, firemen, musicians, scientists, lumberjacks, farmers, spies, mountain climbers, lifeguards, astronauts, accountants, disc jockey, coal miners, businessmen, and bartenders, among numerous other central casting types but they were all male. Why?
2: Well, as a kid, I didn't really even notice it. I was just, I mean, I grew up in the 60s when it was a man's world. So that the guys were doing the stuff that interested me. I didn't, representations of women were just absurd. They were like housewives or secretaries, which didn't interest me. And then as I got older and had more of a political awareness or became more of a feminist, it occurred to me that To be a woman meant to be something other. It meant that you were not human. You were something other than human. And I would think of like the Mickey Mouse versus Minnie Mouse. You know, Mickey was just like the regular generic human mouse. And Minnie was Mickey with all these appurtenances and details
1: added to her. Did you say Minnie was Mickey in drag? Yeah. That's better put. Yes. You you. said
2: that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't like I was drawing men. I was just drawing people, the people who were doing the things that interested me. But then later, I feel like there, there was some element of gender dysphoria at work, that there was some way that I've always, I mean, I don't identify as transgender at all, but there was a way that I just felt more male, like more masculine, like I just am a masculine woman, I guess. And I'm, I, as a young feminist, that felt like very bad. You should eradicate that in yourself if you could, but I've come more to just accept it.
1: You went to Simons Rock College and then transferred to Oberlin. You graduated with a degree in studio arts and art history. And you intended to go to graduate school and you applied to schools like Yale and RISD, but you were rejected from every school <laughs> you applied to. I just find that so incredibly hard to believe. I mean, how could they have not seen your body of work? And
2: Well, I had a strange body of work. I didn't know that I was a cartoonist at that point in time. And so the work I was turning in was just a hodgepodge of stuff I'd done in college, which was not that great. Plus, now we get back to the, my work and my life being the same thing. At the point where I was applying to graduate programs, my father had just died, like within a year. And I was just kind of a, I didn't know I was a mess. I thought I was carrying on admirably, but I really was very adrift
1: you Instead of going to graduate school, you moved to New York City and you started working in menial office jobs and you began to write. And one of the first pieces you wrote was about the time you tried to get grass stains on your pants in a bid for your mother's attention. And is this a story you sent to Audrey and Rich? Yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> So you sent her a short story to be published in Sinister... Sinister Wisdom, yeah, which she was yeah.
2: editing. And she wrote back and said, this is like so juvenile. You have to think a lot more about this. You know, it was very kind, but very
1: honest. It was honest, but it didn't feel discouraging. It actually felt like she was encouraging you to keep working.
2: One could have taken it either way, but I chose to be encouraged. Oh, well, I was discouraged in the immediate time frame. Like It was like, okay, I can't write. I'm not going to be a writer. But
1: then later, I came back to that. And you wrote her back, and then she wrote you back.
2: No, oh, well, m- many, many years later, I thanked her for that letter. Yeah, like 20 years later. Oh, it was I, 20 years. I can't mess with the time frame. I thanked her for taking the time because, I, re- you know, I, as I got older and became a professional person and realized how much work it is to keep up with your correspondence, I couldn't believe that she had written to me.
1: And then at that point, she knew who you were and had recognized your work.
2: Yeah, yeah. That was really very lovely.
1: Dykes to Watch Out for first cropped up in the margin of a letter you were writing to a friend, and you titled the drawing, Marianne Dissatisfied with the Breakfast Brew. And you've stated that for some reason you were moved to further label it Dykes to Watch Out for, plate number 27 as if it were just one in a series of illustrations of what you refer to as mildly demonic lesbians. (laughs) I believe this was your first published cartoon, and it ran in the 1983 Lesbian Pride issue of a feminist newspaper. So how did it get to the newspaper? How did that happen?
2: I worked at that newspaper. I was a volunteer at this feminist monthly called Woman News, and I... I showed up just because I wanted to meet people and do something interesting, and a newspaper sounded fun. And then I got involved with the production end of the paper, and we were a collective. So we just all put this paper out together. No one got paid. And I was doing these cartoons for fun and showing them to my friends, and someone said, you know, you should show these to the collective and see if if they want to put them in the paper, and they did. So I started doing one a month for this newspaper.
1: In the indelible Alice and Bechtel, one of your books, you write The concept of a series, although initially a joke, begged for a continuation. I found myself drawing more and more plates in my sketchbooks over the next several months. The captions grew increasingly complex, and the drawings more finished and deliberate. Eventually, I had a small sheaf of dykes to watch out for that I would whip out and display to acquaintances at the slightest provocation. It was at this time you began doing a cartoon for every issue of the magazine and then – or the newspaper and then began sending them out. So you tried to do your own syndication. And what was that like?
2: There was this gay and lesbian subculture happening in the 80s that I was so excited by, this whole like sort of parallel – world where gay people were making their own art and newspapers and had their own bookstores and bars. And I loved that world and I wanted to document. I wanted to like not just be part of it but to show it. So I started doing that with these comics. Like I just wanted to see images of people like me, which I didn't see anywhere in the culture at
1: that point. There was no L word. There was no (laughs) Ellen. You know, there was very little reflected back. And your comic was really one of the first things.
2: Yeah, in terms of visual stuff, yeah. I mean, there were there was like lesbian photography, which I very hungrily sought out just to see these images. I mean, it was like, it's funny too, because now there's just so many images of every imaginable kind. It's hard to imagine that kind of image desert we had, but...
1: Do you remember the book by Jeb, the yeah, photographs? Yeah, yeah, oh, that
2: was very formative for me.
1: Jeb's remarkable book, Portraits of Lesbians.
2: I felt like that was my lost family album, you know? And eventually I, in my life, I met many of the subjects of of those pictures. Yeah, it was like like meeting your long-lost aunt or something.
1: That's incredible. When you first started to syndicate your comics, you began to hand-sew postcards, and you were making them on the copy machine at your office job, and you were constantly terrified that one would get stuck in the machine and you'd be found out at this menial job that you had. And I read that you were always braced for marginality, and just expected no one was going to be interested in your bizarre subcultural experiences. Given the success that you've now had, has it gotten any easier for you, or are you still constantly doubting your own work and worth?
2: Oh, yes. That hasn't changed. The reason that, A, becoming a cartoonist, and B, becoming a lesbian cartoonist, someone who wrote about like lesbian feminism, of all things, it was almost like I was seeking forms of expression that no one was going to really <laughs> notice or judge, specifically my parents. I mean, my father was dead by that point, but psychically I think I was trying to express myself in a way that my parents couldn't see. Even later when I would show my mother my work, especially when I was writing Home, writing this memoir about my family, she couldn't understand the comics format, and I kind of liked that. It's like, I didn't want her to really see what I was
1: doing. But that's really because of the relationship you had with your mother, not necessarily the relationship you had with the world. Or would but I you say they they're were the similar. same? I
2: think they're similar. You know, both of my parents loved fine art, they loved literature, they were always reading poetry. And I came, you know, I had to rebel against that. So I I found this art form that was anti elitist and populist. It was more like journalism and it was a way of being an artist without claiming to be an artist.
1: You've said that the challenge of autobiography is to transcend its inherent egocentrism enough that someone else will be interested. How do you accomplish that? Is it more than just a a riveting story? I mean, here you created in Dykes to Watch Out for first and then later in Fun Home and Are You My Mother, this very uniquely non-mainstream life that you share— and I've read so many accounts of people that did not experience anything that you experienced ultimately completely able to relate to what you were writing about and who you were writing for. And so I'm wondering if there's a way that you've created the, um, the cartoon narrative that's different from memoir narrative that somehow engages people in a fundamentally different way because of the graphics.
2: That's a good question. I do think there's something about just the fact of being able to show stuff that enables you to convey like an order of meaning that once you attach language to it, something gets lost. There's a way for people to see a, a scene or a moment in time or the emotions that you're drawing of a character, to not point those out. In the heavy handed way you would have to in words, I think it it forges some kind of relationship. Like there's a bond that the viewer, the the reader has with those drawings that makes them more sympathetic, perhaps, than they would be to the same scene described without them.
1: There there were so many there's so many little nuances to the way you draw characters that when you talked about how and, and you've said a number of times how drawing Dykes to Watch Out For gave you a sense of being able to reflect back on your life and and seeing how you were living, and that's what it did for a lot of the people that were reading the comic strip when you were writing it and drawing it. Um, But there were aspects of the characters, despite their sexual orientation or their politics— there were universal behaviors. People curled their feet under the chair in the same way or held their cat in the same way or drank their coffee in the same way. And there's a humanity that you've presented in these characters that transcends any type of choice. It's just about being human that I think is, is so extraordinary.
2: Oh, that's good to hear. And that was really my mission when I was younger. If I had had it together enough to declare my mission, it would have been that I wanted to show that lesbians were humans. I mean, I did say that later in my life, but I had a very visceral sense of wanting to do that because it's really hard to convey in this day and age just how...
1: Marginalized lesbians m- were in the 80s and even, even before. M- yeah. Marginalized
2: is even a weak word, like hated, <laughs> yeah. despised, feared, mocked, ridiculed, you yeah. know? It, it was the It was the mocking and the ridicule that really... I wanted to dismantle.
1: As somebody who had struggled with my own sexuality for decades, um, part of that marginalization is what kept me very, very much in the closet until much later in life because I was so afraid of being judged and ridiculed and because we're the same age and because of the way that you've been so incredibly free with who you are and generous with your talent about who you are, I can't convey how brave it seems from the outside. It's not
2: brave. It was because of my circumstances, because my father died when he did. It was two things. One, my closeted gay father killed himself. That that happened right before my senior year of college. And so I didn't get into grad schools. I was a mess. I didn't know what I was doing. But that there was something immensely freeing in that. I didn't have a father. Who, a judger. A judger. <laughs> yeah. You know, he had a whole plan for me and he was very um, intrusive about it. it. Was He was constantly trying to get me to live out the life he wished he had had, to take the classes he wished he had taken. And it was really very hard to fight that. So A, I felt this, you know, this – political mission. I didn't want to live a secretive life like my father did. Look how that worked out. I wanted to be out and open. But B, I had nothing to lose. You know, I had no stake in the system. I...
1: Your mother wasn't all that into it.
2: No, she wasn't. And that was hard. And that's part of my whole story with her. But there had been such a rupture with my father's death that I was beyond caring about little things like that. And all this is to say it might look brave from the outside, but it it really wasn't. I didn't have any alternative and I had nothing to lose.
1: In 2006, you published Fun Home, and this is referred to as an autobiographical tragic comic. And this centers on the two parallel events in your life at the time, coming out during your freshman year of college and your closeted gay father's suicide a short time later. And when it came out, Time Magazine crowned the book number one of its 10 best books of the year and stated, forget genre and sexual orientation. This is a masterpiece about two people who live in the same house, but different worlds and their mysterious debts to each other. And I watched a tribute that you made to Audrey and Rich, and you referred to the fictional facade of your own family. Was that why you wrote Fun Home?
2: I wanted to tell the story about me and my father almost as soon as it happened, since I was young. He died when I was 19. But I knew I couldn't reveal – these were big secrets. No one knew my dad was gay. No one knew his death was a suicide. He was hit by a truck. I mean, I grew up in this family that all of a sudden, one day when I was 19, I found out was nothing like I had thought it was. My entire
1: childhood was sort of upended. So you had no suspicion at all? No. Even when he brought you into the city and went out while you were sleeping? and
2: No. No. So I began to have this need to reconcile the past with what I now knew was a different version of that past.
1: How do you make sense of that? Well, you go to therapy for a long time. (laughs) Basically. Fair enough. (laughs) I read that when you were writing Fun Home, you had the realization that what the book was really about is how you learned to be an artist from your father. And you bookended the story with James Joyce's incantation at the end of a portrait of the artist as a young man. Old father, old artificer, stand me now and ever in good stead. And the musical doesn't include the Joyce references or many of your drawings, um, but it does capture their spirit. And Alison, the character, um, gets launched by her father, and as a result, she's able to do something he wasn't able to do. Can you talk a little bit about how your father taught you how to be an artist?
2: You know, I didn't realize that's what the book was about until I think the moment I was writing the ending, and all of a sudden I could could see it. You know, it had started just as the story of me and my dad. Gradually along the way, these literary references had crept in as I I needed to find out more about who my father was It took me seven years to write that book. So it was a very long process. I didn't know how to write. I had to invent it as I went along. So at first it was just my story. Then these other sources crept in when I started looking at the books and authors that my father had loved so passionately and that he was always trying to get me to read growing up. And I would always say, no, 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 get away from me. A portrait of the artist, I don't want to read that. So the Joyce thing just, I don't know, over time organically came together. I mean, that's the weird thing for me about writing memoir. The magical thing is that our our lives are just chaotic. There's no meaning or order to the things that happen to us day after day. But to try and find a story, to try and find some kind of meaning or narrative in those random events is just a really
1: pleasing activity. When Fun Home premiered as a musical off-Broadway at the Public Theater in 2013, it opened on Broadway, Circle in the Square. Theater last year and won the Tony Award for Best Musical. And I read in Rolling Stone that you said that you were not used to such good things happening. You struggled for a really long time. You struggled financially. You struggled emotionally. How do you make sense of all of this incredibly well-deserved good fortune?
2: I'm still trying to do that. I I know it's important to let it in and accept it and not be afraid that it's going to disappear, so I'm working on that. Um, But it is not my natural state. I'm very pleased about how things have turned out, but it can be just as traumatic to have positive things happen to you sometimes as negative things, like just in the way that it, you know, it changes its change.
1: What is it like seeing the characters that were once real and then drawn as cartoons come alive (laughs) in other bodies?
2: It's so weird. And also really really strangely wonderful and healing to see these people acting out my family's story on the stage night after night.
1: Does it just kill you when you see people crying and sort of falling in love and having these sort of really visceral reactions to your work?
2: Yeah, it's I mean, it's all kind of unbearable. It's (laughs) (laughs) in in a good way. Um, It's very intense to see the show. It's well, I mean, obviously, it's a painful show to watch, and it's especially painful if it's actually your own story. So I've ca- kind of become almost shut down to it in a way. Like, I I think I've seen it too many times. I need to take a, a break.
1: Speaking of more sad things, um, your mother died just before Fun Home opened at The Public. Had she read any of it or heard any of the music? I
2: gave her the script. I gave her... a CD of all the songs, and I told her, here it is. If you want to listen to it and read it, just prepare yourself. It could be intense. And I have no idea if she ever read or listened.
1: She didn't give you any feedback. Did She gave you feedback on the graphic novel, though, right? I mean, she knew.
2: Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, I showed that to her in draft form. That was part of the whole process was I had to get her to be OK with all of that. Um. And she, she was always – she was very minimal in the feedback she would give. But I think she didn't want to implicate herself in a way. Like she wasn't going to be part of this story. But she had a few things she asked me to change or correct. And I mostly did those things. We worked them all out.
1: You refer to a lot of this in Are You My Mother, which is the book that you wrote after Fun Home. Yeah, kind
2: of. And my memoir about my mother ended up being a memoir about about writing the memoir about my father and how how we navigated that. What made you decide to write that book? For a while, it wasn't clearly conceptualized as a memoir about my mother. I think I was trying to avoid doing that. Somehow I knew that's what had to happen, but I didn't want to do it. So... For many years, I thought I was writing a book about my relationship history. I was going to write about, like, you know, crazy relationships I'd been in. It was like about the idea of relationships, about the self and the other. And it was very abstract and constipated. And finally, my agent looked at what I had been doing for the past several years and said, this really doesn't make any sense at all. And it was a great relief to hear someone tell me that. And I realized that at that moment the problem was that I was trying to avoid directly writing about my relationship with my mother. And then I, then I was able to tell the story.
1: At the beginning of the book, you state you can't live and write at the same time. Do you still feel that way?
2: I do. I do. I mean, once you're writing, you're not present in your life. But that doesn't mean that's so terrible. I mean, I think that's just my lot. That's just my plight Writing is just more comfortable than living.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Especially alone. (laughs) Um, You stated that, like your mother, you've kept a log of the events of your daily external life. But unlike her, you also recorded a great deal of information about your internal life. Though you've often been confused about precisely where the demarcation lives. Has that become any clearer to you? No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, no. Um,
2: I mean, you know, I grew up as a young woman. It was the the moment of the personal is political. And I found that very salvational. It was a very useful slogan. And it explained my life perfectly. Like I was the result of, you know, a father who, who was gay before the gay liberation movement, a mother who was thwarted in her desire to be a writer or a professor because she she came of age before the women's movement they both like were just too a little too before their time but if they had if they had never met if they had in fact if she had gone on to you know be a feminist or my dad had gone on to come out i wouldn't have been born so you know, so as a younger person i felt very clearly that there was no demarcation that everything was an open book and that was Ethically proper, but as I've gotten older and as I've lived with the the fallout, good and bad, of writing these stories about my family, um, I feel less adamant about that. You know, I think there is a place for privacy. So I guess I'm getting, I'm getting a maybe a little more private as I age, and especially as I, I feel so overexposed, like i I've put so much of myself out in the world.
1: You write about how you were very taken with the recurring references Alice Miller, the writer of the drama of The Gifted Child, made to the ideas of D.W. Winnicott in Are You My Mother? And how the notion of a true self that had to be kept hidden at all costs particularly resonated with you. And I, I find that so interesting, the notion of the true self needing to be hidden while writing about the self. And I was overwhelmed over and over and over again as I was reading, Are You My Mother? about how much we choose to reveal. And even though you are revealing all of these experiences, thoughts, feelings, they're within a context of who you think you are, which in many ways we don't always know, especially if we've had early childhood trauma or bad mothering. And so I was wondering if you feel that you're revealing your true self in your work now in a different way than you might have been earlier on prior to reading Winnicott and Alice Miller and writing Are You My Mother? I hope I am. I mean, I'm working on another book
2: now that I hope is not as... The the funny thing about Are You My Mother is that it's a very cerebral book. I feel like it somehow fails to really break out of the very thing it's describing, which is this the mind as its own object.
1: <laughs> I, and that, that's kind of what I loved about it, though. Has the notion of Winnicott's transitional object influenced your subsequent writing? Not so much the
2: transitional object idea, but all of Winnicott's ideas as a whole. And his emphasis on play and spontaneous living without overthinking things is something I'm still struggling to assimilate and and is very much shaping the stuff I'm trying to do right now.
1: You've said that you could probably write 17 more books about your family, but it seems like from what I've read, your next book is not about your family. I don't know if it's still the book that you're working on, but I read it's titled The Secret to Superhuman Strength... And it's a graphic history of trends in fitness and your own obsession with them. You're a black belt in karate. Um, Well, I
2: was. I was a long time ago.
1: But once you get a black belt, aren't you always a black belt? Is that like being Jewish? You're just always Jewish, even if you don't go to temple?
2: But you don't talk about it because then someone could like attack you and then Ah. you wouldn't have your skills.
1: (laughs) So you were a black belt.
2: Yes. I prefer to put it that way.
1: And so is is that what you're working on?
2: Yes, it is.
1: Can you tell us anything more about it?
2: Doing things with my body is like my one happy, trauma-free place. Like, well, I mean, it's a book about the self, actually. It's about the self. Where's the self in the body?
1: Where's the mind in the body? Oh, that's interesting because there's a piece in Are You My Mother where you – I think it's Are You My Mother? Yeah, right. Where you you start chopping off parts of the body and like, is it still me? Is it still me? Is it still me? And all you're left with is the head. Yeah. Yeah. And I want
2: to reassemble my whole body as myself. And that is the project
1: of this book. Wow. You know, I, when I first read about this online, I was certain that I'd heard that title before. And then I remembered that when you were a kid, when you wanted to gain weight – you sent away for weight gain drinks advertised in the back of your comic books and responded to an ad that promised the secret to superhuman yeah. strength. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out to be a disappointingly technical booklet about an up, an obscure martial art. And so did yeah. that that title just embedded itself in your DNA? Very much.
2: It was one of those comic book ads, you know, that sh- yeah. shape all of our deepest, most primal desires. I didn't actually send away for weight gain drinks. Those were tempting but I knew I, my parents would not let me drink weight gain drinks. But so this one thing it was a booklet. It was like a booklet on how to have superhuman strength. So hell yeah. Give me that. But yeah, it was like a weird jujitsu handbook. This <laughs> like a thousand times reprinted. You could hardly even see the words and the bad little halftone images. But I tried to read the book. I tried to understand these martial arts moves. And later, I yeah, I did study martial arts. But... You know, I want to be, I want to be invincible.
1: You don't think you already are? Well, no.
2: No, I mean, ultimately, that's what the book is about, is that we, none of us are invincible.
1: When I was a kid, the thing that I sent away for that was um, advertised in the back of comics was um, a vacuum cleaner that was supposed to vacuum away your fat. Oh, no. Oh, my God.
2: I know. All the particular ways that we get disillusioned by those
1: products. So I have two more questions for you. One is a really, really serious one. One is a really, really lighthearted one. I'm going to ask the serious one first. Um, You write about how you've speculated that being a lesbian actually saved you from some aspects of your childhood And if it weren't for the unconventionality of your desires, your mind might have never been forced to reckon with your body. And that blew my mind. And you state, it was only my lesbianism and my determination not to hide it that saved you from being compliant to the core. How did that decision ultimately define you?
2: Well, it's interesting because it ties into what we we're, what I was just trying to say about, like, the overly cerebral nature of Are You My Mother or of my work in general. You know, for me, thinking is a defense. It's a defense against just being. Yeah. For I me, never... it's a defense against my body. So in my case, my body, like, spoke up. You know, I knew I was attracted to women and that felt like a truth, you know, something that was inherently true and I had to just – Go with that. So that's what I what I mean when I say it saved me because I I became an outlaw at a young age and was very freed up to do whatever I wanted. And I was not doing – I was writing this crazy marginal comic strip for free. It was not a great career path. And bizarrely, it has worked out. Amazingly. So uh,
1: I thank my body for that. My last question is about your short truce big-click pen, circa 1968. Tell us about this pen.
2: Oh, it made such a nice, fat, heavy line. I used to love, I would actually put down strips of Scotch 3M Magic tape and write on that because I would get this extra smooth gliding line. As a cartoonist, I feel like I've never, it's so hard to find a good pen. I never get the kind of flow that I want. I mean, it's it's a metaphor, too. I can never, I'm always struggling to flow in every way, but to get a flowing line on a pen, it's so hard. And... I love the feeling of that. It would it would stay wet. You'd smudge it. It was just uh, very sensual.
1: <laughs> Allison, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. To find out more about Alison Bechtel, head on over to her website, com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Mark Dudley. The show is produced exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.